For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT, today's news talk. We are in hour number two of this live broadcast. That was an amazing analytical intelligence dump there, which we had with our previous guest, Layla Hatoum, an excellent journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Layla's analysis has been outstanding uh, from the beginning of this crisis. We're very pleased that she could join us to share what she sees and hears uh, in the region and what to expect going forward. It's very important, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be joined uh, in just a couple of minutes uh, by another analyst from Europe, Marcus Krauss, is going to join us about talking about the energy markets you know what's happening in the in the red sea right now the u.s declaring war in yemen shutting off the babel mendep straits this is definitely going to have an effect on the global oil and gas markets uh, who is likely to suffer most it looks like europe might with higher prices as if it wasn't bad enough already we'll talk to marcus about that very important and obviously that's going to affect inflation and lots of other things uh, and we'll also be joined by basil valentine for some breaking updates uh, on the situation in gaza in the middle east the political reactions the maneuvers going on in the west all of that and also christian james our research assistant for the show is going to join us in the bottom of the half hour with uh, a little bit of a, de a deeper look at the WEF, uh, some of the crazy things that have been said and are going on there. That This place is just completely bonkers uh, up in Davos, Switzerland. They do it every year. It's getting worse and worse. I don't know. They're going to have to basically cordon the place off and then look turn it into a giant padded cell at some point because there's all sorts of nutters running around who've got more money than cents, uh, and that's just the way it is. When you're Bill Gates and you've got more money than sense, you've got nothing to do but spend your money. You, you dream up a wild Victorian science fiction uh, plots and machinations. Like I don't know. Here's one for for good measure. Let's uh, let's make a giant blimp like a giant uh, uh, zeppelin, uh, and let's hoist it uh, into the lower atmosphere of the Earth, and let's just start spraying with a big hose attached all the way to the ground. Yeah, and start spraying uh, aluminum particulate and barium and all sorts of other toxic uh, materials. Spray that into the uh, lower atmosphere uh, in order to uh, deflect sunlight, uh, in order to save humanity from uh, man-made global warming from the sun, basically. That's what guys like Bill Gates do with their money, okay? Dangerous, dangerous. They made James Bond films about people like this. Did we not learn anything from watching all those films uh, over the years, like Goldfinger uh, and Dr. No, it, it, a literal megalomaniac uh, that wants to just destroy the planet in order to save humanity? I love how that works. Uh, look, when we get Marcus, we'll come in hot, uh, and Basil as well. Both of them are kind of on the fly at the moment in the field uh, doing what they do. They're going to bring us that information. I also want to bring you a hot take here from Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. Uh, he is also a U.N. weapons inspector. 
claim to fame during the Gulf War. Uh, he stood up against the establishment on the WMD issue as well. Scott is an incredible geopolitical analyst. He's become a real go-to point uh, with regards to the conflict in Ukraine. He's also stepped up in a big way uh, in defense of the Palestinians in Gaza. So when Scott talks, I do pay attention because he's normally pretty much on point. He's saying how the U.S. misleads the world about its involvement in Yemen. Scott Ritter says, while Washington maintains that strikes on Houthi installations are defensive and fully legal, neither is the case. I happen to agree with him, and we have broken this issue down previously, but let's just hear what Scott has to say. According to Scott Ritter, the strikes in Yemen were necessary, proportionate, is what the U.S. is saying. This is Tony Blinken and co. They're saying, U.S. is saying, strikes on Yemen were necessary, proportionate, consistent with international law. Okay. And Scott's saying, not really. He's saying this statement by the U.S. delegate to the United Nations defended a joint U.S.-U.K. military strike against targets affiliated with the, quote, Houthi militia undertaken on January 12th, just in the evening, uh, just a few days ago, in fact. And the irony of this statement, says Ritter, is that it was made before the body, the U.N. Security Council, had not authorized any such action thereby eliminating any claim to legitimacy that it could possibly be made by the United States. So this reminds me of Libya, folks. You remember when the no-fly zone became a bombing zone? You remember how the U.S. and its allies, Britain, Norway, and others, played the gray line on that and slipped in to turn it into basically the total decapitation of a nation? Do you remember that? That was in 2011. I remember that. That was a dark day uh, in NATO's uh, portfolio, that's for sure. Scott goes on, the Charter of the United Nations specifies two conditions under international law in which a military force can be used. One is in, if it's conducted uh, under the 51st Charter of the UN. The other is in accordance with the authority granted by the UN Security Council itself through resolution passed under Chapter 7 of the Charter. Scott is absolutely correct. Chapter and verse, that's international law. However, However, British Foreign Minister David Cameron cited the UN Security Council in his justification of the UK's involvement in the attacks on Yemen, claiming that the Security Council had, quote, made clear that the, quote, Houthi must halt the attack in the Red Sea, right? You see how the sleight of hand works on the international stage. So when the Security Council had issued a resolution demanding that the, quote, Houthis cease their attacks, on international shipping in the Red Sea, this resolution was not passed under Chapter 7, and therefore neither the U.S. nor the U.K. had any authority whatsoever under international law. Imagine the West, the U.S. and Britain uh, abiding by international law. They only they only raise this this term when they're condemning Russia. This is the only time you'll hear them opining about international law. Anyway... Uh, Ritter is absolutely spot on here, and his uh, analysis reflects what a lot of other people have been saying about this. This was not legal by any stretch of the imagination. But for the United States, you see it gets even worse because domestically, Joe Biden did a runaround of Congress. And basically, I don't even know if there was any formal declaration. Did they not invoke the uh, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA? Did they not... Did they not invoke the authorization of use of military force? I did. I don't know if I heard the Biden speech. Normally, when the U.S. 
attacks another sovereign state or country, they the president goes, uh, they they get the sort of fake backdrop set of the Oval Office. They talk to the nation and they say, I have instructed my joint chiefs to blah, 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 attack these terrorists or whatever. Um, I didn't see that happening. Maybe I don't watch enough US TV. If anybody has a clip of that, any formal declaration of war by the United States or at least the president uh, invoking the NDAA, I mean, does anybody have a clip of that? Because I missed it. I could be wrong, and I, I, I occasionally I am, especially when I'm trolling uh, the IOF. But uh, in this case, I have not seen that clip. I, again, I stand corrected if it exists. So what is this? This is a new way of waging war without without declaring war. Uh, another level of uh, obfuscation by the United States. So both the U.S. and the U.K. invoked the notion of quote self-defense. This is interesting. Self-defense in the attacks on Yemen, thereby indirectly alluding to the possible cognizable action under Article 51 of the UN Charter. U.S. President Joe Biden justified justified the U.S. military attack on the, quote, Houthi militia forces in Yemen in a statement released shortly after the strikes ended. I ordered this military action, said Biden, he declared, in accordance to my responsibility to protect Americans at home and abroad. How on earth does hitting answer Allah in Yemen, who didn't kill anybody when they're interdicting Israeli ships? They declared sanctions against Israel, and they said until a ceasefire happens, until Israel stops being in breach of the Geneva Conventions of International Law, of the Genocide Convention, then they're going to interdict any Israeli ships providing material support for the state of Israel or heading to any Israeli ports. Quite simple, quite direct, pretty easy to follow. And and, and what part of that equation were Americans under threat? I, I, I cease to see it. I cannot see it. So Biden is full of hot air. Or worse, uh, if there's anything in there in Biden's head, I'd be, I'd be happy even if it was hot air. But anyway, the main problem, says Ritter, with this argument is that the, quote, Houthis had not attacked Americans either at home or abroad to the extent that the U.S. forces had previously engaged weapons fired by the Houthis. They had done so to shield non-American assets, i.e. the state of Israel or international shipping from Houthi attacks. Under no circumstances could the U.S. argue that it had been attacked by the Houthis. Of course not. Of course not. Not even close, in fact. But uh, that's just the way it is. Excellent article by Scott Ritter, and I have to give him props uh, for his uh, details of international law. Scott is incredibly elusive on these issues. So we really appreciate his analysis here. You can find that article actually up at rt.com. Uh, if you're in the UK, you can't read that because it's been banned by the government because it contains dangerous Russian disinformation, according to the UK government. Uh, so you have to use a VPN. Uh, there you are. Ladies and gentlemen, let's take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk, and we'll try to connect our next guest on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stick around. We'll be right back. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints us. We'll be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having 
attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. We don't rock, we talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT, Today's News Talk. And I want to switch gears right now. We're going to talk about a very important issue, uh, not just geopolitics, but energy. The situation in the Red Sea uh, has disrupted. Uh, A lot of people believe is going to disrupt as well, increasingly so going forward with the closing of the Babo Mendeb Straits. Uh, This is going to disrupt and perhaps affect the oil and gas markets and not in a positive way, especially for Europeans who have already had a tough time over the last two years. And that's an understatement. Uh, To talk about this issue, I want to bring on to the stage Marcus Krauss. He's been on the program uh, before based in Central Europe as well. Marcus, thank you for joining us on TNT, today's news talk. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you as well. So Marcus, what do you make of this situation? And uh, as I said previously, uh, Europe has really taken a beating uh, in terms of inflation, uh, the cost of energy over the last two years. And it was really happening before that as well. But the Ukraine conflict uh, really pushed Europe into a difficult uh, position, especially Germany as well, your uh, your home country. Uh, what do you make of this current situation? How do you think this is going to affect what we're seeing in the Red Sea for starters? But what other issues are cropping up on this? What have you observed looking at the markets? Well, you have to understand what's going on in Europe. We are actually, and in Germany, but uh, in, in what just happened, we are actually bankrupt. And you can see all the protests all over the country because of our 
government just took money from from COVID and from other things to spend somewhere else and so on, money laundering. And they were not allowed to do this anymore. And now it is forbidden to subsidize the gas and our energy. And this will have a shift from January on and people will suffer. But you have to understand our gas stocks are above 80% still as far as I, when I last time looked at it. So we have actually enough gas and the gas lasts longer than last year, but you have to understand why. The problem is in January last year, 25% of our heavenly related gas related industry was already down, was bankrupt. So we need less gas. And at the moment, over 300,000 companies are in bankruptcy. They have filed for bankruptcy. And that's why we need less gas. And our uh, government is talking about we are, uh, I think, like in the 90s already in uh, less energy, like in the 90s. And they are very happy that we have a lower CO2 output already. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, <laughs> They try to sell this to the people, but what it actually means is we are getting a lot of unemployed people. And if we are talking about unemployed people, if 300,000 companies are bankrupt, we are getting about 24,000, uh, 24 million unemployed people pretty soon. And this is a big impact. And, and when, you're when you're talking about businesses bankrupt, Marcus, some of these businesses have left Germany. They've left Europe. They've set up shop in other countries like China or the United States. So these are whole industries that are not coming back, basically. Yeah, it's the biggest player, actually, and also the biggest consumer of, of uh, gas. They said that they will go to China, but this will take about maybe five years or so. It will take some time. The impact is not so big at the moment, but parts of BASF closed already and uh, they are not producing it any, uh, any fertilizer, for example, anymore. And uh, there are, this is 24 million unemployed people. I was calculating about for 80 people per company. In France, 55,000 companies are bankrupt and they are talking about 200 per company. So I just took 80. And if you take 200 uh, per company, it's about, it was, I think, 11 million. So there is a big, big impact where our industry, the main consumer of energy is falling away. We need less energy, but the problem is rising somewhere else what are all these unemployed people who pays them and where do they get the money from and uh, we will have uh, a lot of products missing in the future this is a big shift and now with with qatar with these shipments uh, being cut off there will be another shift i mean lng was just about seven percent of our uh, energy level so it is not too much but uh, we are really having big energy problems in the future. And these are a lot of this stems from uh, after the uh, 
the Ukraine conflict, the sanctions on Russia, the closing of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines that provided a fantastic steady supply, affordable supply to Germany. I mean, if you're running a business in Germany and you know you can bank on fixed costs, good supply, consistent, you can expand your business. But when you take that away, what's a business supposed to do at that point? What are they just going to roll the dice across their fingers, hope that uh, solar and wind is going to, you know, do the job in the future. They don't have time to wait around for that. So a lot of them has just pulled up stakes and left Marcus. Where are all these unemployed people going to go in Germany? Well, I don't know. A lot of people try to move out to different countries and uh, are making their thoughts about this situation and want to leave Germany, but it's, it's not so easy to leave the country to left your loved ones and everything. So they will try to stay, but uh, I think there are hard times coming up on the Germans. And a lot of people do not understand. I mean, Germany got such a strong economy power in Europe, which is actually the main power which runs the EU. And this has to do with the LNG, with the CNG, actually because a lot of people don't know where this comes from. We owned the, the source in Siberia, the, the LNG, where the, where the CNG comes from. The BASF, the German BASF owned these wells and they built a pipeline together with Russians and Ukrainians, and they were paid by the gas flowing through that. And that's why we really got sees this big economy and the rising of Germany just could happen with cheap energy. And we paid about a third of the world market price. And now we pay about three times as much uh, from the world market price. Wow. This is the difference. You are not um, competitive anymore with these prices. That's why a lot of companies are closing and they said they will close. And I was talking about bankruptcy. We have other companies like Hasbro who's cutting 10% of their employees. And this is about a thousand people. You know, there are a lot of other more people going down, um, being unemployed. Then uh, nobody knows the right figures because our government keeps all these numbers at the moment um, hidden. We don't see these numbers anymore. You have to dig in deep to find something out. They are hiding the truth. If every German would know the truth uh, and would know what's going on, I mean, the, the protests are pretty big. I don't know if you've seen the protests and how big they are or they were. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, this still continuing the only thing some places. Yeah. I'll get your comment on that before we break, Marcus. But you know, they're in, they're in Davos right now. All the various leaders from around Europe, and all they seem to be concerned about is CO two levels, uh, and not economic performance, not unemployment. They're not talking about any of that. Uh, Alenina Baerbach only cares about uh, what she's you know claiming are the CO two output levels, uh, not not what people's uh, bank accounts look like and who can afford to heat their homes uh, during the winter. But on the farmers' protest, we're going to go to break in a minute just quickly your reaction on the uh the, the farmers protest in germany go ahead marcus oh it was tremendous i really loved it and a lot of people even in germany don't know where this comes from 
actually our government, these subsidizations, what they want to kill now, are a long time ago, they, um, it was, they put this on gas and oil and, and, and diesel and, and uh, oil uh, and gas because they wanted to build the roads with it. And the farmers, they farm their land with the diesel. And that's why they got this money back. It's not about, they are misusing this money and now they have to pay for the roads, but they are not using the money for the roads. They want to use this money for something else. That's what it's all about. It's uh, not for the people, it's for Ukraine, for the US. It's all for money laundering. And uh, yeah, they're taking the money from all the people to feed the war machine. We're going to get more on this uh, as this develops over the couple, next couple of weeks, Marcus. I want to, we'll definitely come back to you uh, on this important topic and just the general outlook for the winter. It is definitely not great uh, for a lot of people in Europe. Marcus Krauss, uh, political commentator, thank you very much for joining us on TNT Today's News Talk. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Patrick. And thank you for your show. It's very important. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. We'll hopefully visit Marcus again uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, like right now, we're going to take a very quick break and connect our roving correspondent, uh, Basil Valentine, on the other side. And we got Christian James uh, in the green room as well coming up. So stay right there. We'll be right back. We're ready. We're ready. The news. news. The news is our business. And we never close. Never close. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. Pakistan has confirmed conducting a series of airstrikes targeting terrorist hideouts in southern Iran, describing the operation as precise and stating it resulted in the neutralization of several militants. This offensive follows Iran's own recent airstrikes against a terrorist group located in Pakistan. David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, and Argentine President Javier Malay have acknowledged their differing views on the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands as reported by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office on Wednesday. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab, or Getter? Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. All right, welcome back, folks. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're in hour number two, this live broadcast. Thank you, Marcus Krauss. What's happening in Germany is so indicative of the poor economic performance uh, in Europe in general. And as we know, the great and the good have gathered in Davos in Switzerland at high altitudes, expensive hotel rooms, private jets. We won't even talk about the late night entertainment. That's another salacious story. But I want to bring on to the stage right now, Christian James, our research assistant for the show. Christian's been keeping an eye on the goings on up at Davos at the World Economic Forum's annual confab. Christian, I've seen some incredible things that have been said. We just get highlights and clips. Uh, there's a lot of desperation. There's quite a lot of warmongering going on, Christian, uh, at Davos this year. They're sort of pivoting. It's almost, I feel like it's a NATO summit. But um, what what are your sort of observations of so far on Davos? So this year, Davos appears to be, have a very different tone. It certainly appears to be flowing off what happened at COP28. Um, certainly those kinds of uh, themes are continuing on. Um, their title, as you know, uh, this year is From Lab to Life, uh, Science in Action for 2024 is their kind of P 
uh, their key message, really. But of course, they are talking about uh, building trust, retrust, really, as uh, Clash War puts it uh, yesterday. Um, so, as you know, it's the 54th um, gathering of Davos, which is the highest village, of course, in Sweden. That's what you're doing, in Switzerland, even. So, what are they talking about? Um, well, they're talking mainly about the centralization of command and control of food and energy. Um, I listened to a talk yesterday. What was mainly focused around uh, countries coming into the fourth industrial revolution initiative, which is the idea that uh, food, energy, uh, resources will be um, effectively um, stocktaped um, for all countries uh, around the world. A number of countries have now signed on to that, including uh, uh, the likes of um, Tasmania have now signed on as separately from Australia, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, mm. The likes of Vietnam has come on board, Qatar has come on board. So the idea is they're going to stock take their uh, entire portfolio of uh, minerals, resources, availability to find out what their current economic status is in regards to how it can grow using the likes of AI technology and basically future planning. And um, there, there was a there was a conversation that I heard. Um, a, a, it was a talk that finished about two o'clock yesterday but the mics were still on it was really interesting to listen to this and they were talking about how um you in regards to the uh, the nitrogen situation in regards to our uh, fertilizer and how of course we're trying to move away from that because of course that comes from russia and then the conversation literally was is that certain countries their their biodiversity of their soil is uh, due to erode or erade um, over the course of the next 20 years what can we do to avoid this which certainly is, is a real valid concern and there certainly does appear to be you know there's the creative types the uh, the influencers the the kind of political side the um economic side all actually having what effectively is quite constructive conversations but there is this kind of framework in the back of how that certain organizations and certain people want that to be orientated certainly in their ideal image um i mean the ones that really uh, struck me in terms of um how they want their future to be is really to have um water scarcity was a particular topic that uh, came into mind that i saw over the last two days really talking about uh supply chain disruptions again mentioning really that russia has been a, such a disrupting influence on the, how the food scarcity is going to work and you and i know along with many of the other talkers who've come on tnt in more recent times talking about what's happening in the netherlands what's happening in germany uh in france in regards to uh their uh food situation all the tractors of course have rolled into their parliament situation they, of course, are facing um, sanctions. So not sanctions, but uh, they're facing less money coming from the government to them in certain forms of subsidies. Um, so this is kind of a quandary, a kind of a opposite viewpoint to what's being discussed in there. They're going, well, it's climate change that is damaging this environment. Well, actually, the policies are quite the opposite. The policies are being driven by these very same people, the very people trying to put this framework into place, into a legislation, what these countries now have to follow. And uh, what we're seeing really is that kind of disruption going, well, uh, the farmers are talking about, hey, you know, we're losing our subsidies, but the government, hey, wants us to be food, uh, have food sovereignty. Um, mm. How do we make this thing happen? Which is completely at odds with what they're doing. So I think really the farmers are, in this particular regard um, are very frustrated by this. But those in Davos clearly have a plan. 
Yeah, Christian, that's it. Uh, you know, yeah, we want to be food self-sufficient. I loved food resilient. Resilience. We love these buzzwords. Uh, the build back better vocabulary. You know, the glossary of build back better. Resilience. Uh, foods self-sustainable, whatever. And then they're doing everything they possibly can to deindustrialize Europe. And let's just let's just remind ourselves, uh, Christian, here. The 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 only thing that keeps the EU together are subsidies. Um, and, and some of these member states, the only reason they're in the EU is because of the ag subsidies, uh, common agricultural policy, et cetera, all these other sort of things they get, which are being bankrolled by the wealthy northern nations of Europe. I'm talking about Germany. I'm talking about the Netherlands. But when you kill the goose that lays the golden egg, what are you going to do about the poor south of Europe or these other countries that don't have um, the type of means to be able to, you know, uh, deficit spend uh, or don't have the central banking infrastructure that Germany has for the liquidity and all this. It's just a disaster. I think I think this is going to basically, it could degrade at the foundations of Europe itself, like the cohesion of the EU. I'll throw the UK in there too, Christian, because it's kind of part of this overall trend as well of the deindustrialization, the de-agricultural activities going on by these governments. Um, they're really shooting themselves uh, in the foot. But is that the is that the objective? Possibly it is. I mean, I think for countries that I think there's a duplicitous um, situation going on. Clearly, countries want to be self-sufficient in regards to their own people for their own um, stability of their country. But while they're also being driven um, a number of uh, mandates of directives from their higher than the governments of the European Union and above that, the WEF and so on, the likes of the, Euro, um, the UN. So they are, I think they're telling the farmers one thing, telling them the other thing as well. And they're hoping that they sort it out themselves. So I think farmers are completely confused by this. I think people living their day-to-day -day lives are confused by what the message is. Either we are supporting ourselves nationally or we are supporting ourselves globally in regards to these um, this framework of basically trying to make ourselves sustainable for the fourth industrial revolution, which they want to bring down. Um, and one thing I have done, Patrick, I in the TNT chat today, I've dropped a, a document onto there that is... Um, their fourth industrial revolution network um, PDF document. It was published yesterday. I'd like to people to go and have a look at that. It's really interesting. This was published by the World Economic Forum. It's available from Davos. It really is their, um, their take on 2024. And I'd like to pick out a couple of things from this very document that I think you and the listeners of TNT will find really interesting. Page nine, page 11 talks about safeguarding food systems. So this is exactly what we're talking about here water scarcity, um, supply chain disruption, food systems. We need to overcome these challenges in the coming decades uh, to ensure that people don't go hungry, but we have a balance of the environment. Um, there's a particular line that says, we need to research and move into alternative proteins for everybody. So when we're talking <laughs> about alternative protein, you know where we're going with that, crickets and <laughs> locust-based foods. Um, world sugar reduction. Uh, an AI for food manufacturing to uh, keep up and maintain key international stakeholders in Geneva and World Economic Forum headquarters. So they clearly have a plan for what kind of food and what they want to take out of the um, 
the markets clearly they want to downgrade sugar perhaps is a good thing but um like moving everyone into alternative protein i found that to be a particular line that was quite interesting page 18 also talks about a uh, a program in serbia that is moving forward to gather the genomic sequencing of all citizens in serbia the digitalization of health the ministry of health and in and other stakeholders serbia is to be the um the kind of the test bed for this together they will develop a legislation to regulate electronic health records a register of all um citizens genomic data and rules to ensure the protection of citizens health and genomic data while allowing secondary use for biomedical research now if that doesn't sound quite um disturbing from a, a top-down perspective i don't know what is they are looking to have the genomic data of every citizen in serbia as part of wow. their key going forward why serbia why serbia serbia is not even like a full eu member so but serbia is the only european country allied with russia are mm -hmm. there any serbians listening would do you feel a little bit squeamish that klaus schwab wants your genomic data on a database i would very much so um again they're talking about you know the idea of tracking what you eat your travels who you speak to and everything else in life as a kind of um the surveillance system what we've often been talking about um but yeah that that document for the center for the fourth industrial revolution network is definitely worth the read some of the documents um again that what's within that report really is different sectors around the world where their plan appears to be fulfilling its promise of delivering um great abundance with very little money and the idea of people coming together as a community to provide um you know there was things in there like providing uh, better money for people who are um, cocoa growers, from those who are trying to um, grow their yields from uh, using AI. That seems to make to make a lot of sense in regards to a growing population. But in regarding like the Serbian situation of monitoring your biological health, and the idea is that all your data has to be recorded. You know, what is that purpose? Why would that be the case? Why would that be the test bed? Um, like you said, it's on the borders of Russia. Why would that be um, a key target and a key um, data gathering exercise to do? Would that then also be replicated country beyond country? We're not sure, but these are the conversations. And this is the report that's happening coming out of Davos this weekend. Yeah, I think nothing to worry about there. Uh, alternative proteins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't they just just come out and say it? It's it's cricket and crickets, bugs. Uh, uh, what else? Grubs? Are they going to be growing what uh, larvae? I don't know. It's all good protein, isn't it? Uh, those aren't doing too well, by the way, in terms of like having the supermarkets tried to launch different lines of this like cricket flour and stuff. It yes. totally bombed, but they spent tons of money doing it. There's a lot of money behind this, but I don't think they've turned a profit yet on this. No. I don't know. Do you know anyone that uses cricket flour, Christian? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but in regards to where I, where I have worked, uh, they certainly had cricket flour come in last year. Um, I tracked the sales because I was interested in would it ever sell. We never sold one. They eventually went out of date. They were deleted. They were thrown <laughs> away. And um, they went off sale, never to be replaced. However, uh, in more recent uh, weeks, post-January, lots more lines come in of the meat-free lines. And there are indeed mm. uh, alternative uh, soy-based proteins that have come through, uh, ones that are supplemented with uh, insect protein, uh, which I thought <laughs> was quite interesting. Whether they will actually sell it is... is um, is beyond me. Um, one of the other things talked about at Davos, I'm not quite sure if you guys have covered this already, uh, was the fact that the Prime Minister 
um, Alexandra DeCrew, he spoke about um, something quite interesting, is that um, they currently have in their country um, 280 billion uh, euros worth of frozen uh, Russian central bank assets, of which they spoke about at Davos on Monday, but they don't know what to do with the money. Legally, they don't, they can't use it or manipulate it in any way. However, they are in, intending to use the interest gained on that money to spend on Ukraine uh, in regards to f- their fight against Russia. I think Zelensky wants to get his paws on some of that cash. He's probably like chomping at the bit. He's like, just give me a little bit. Just give. They're running dry in Ukraine. That's just sitting there in an account. But it's a dangerous precedent if they go and nab it and take it and then reinvest it and whatever, because that means no no one's money is safe uh, in dollars uh, or euros as well. If that if those seizures become the norm, so I think that's what they're 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 worried about is the trust factor. It's all well and good when everyone's hyped up against Russia in the wake of the uh, ukrainian conflict in february of 2022 but once the dust settles on that everyone sobers up a little bit comes to their senses and saying uh, this might not be a good thing to do but that's a lot of money christian you're talking about 300 plus billion dollars and uh, that's russia's money basically yeah, so it's held in security deposits uh, in Euroclear that's based in Brussels. And so what they're talking about is how do we access this money legally? And they're talking about creating a legal legislative framework in order to access that money and to use it against in the war against Russia. And I can only imagine it's because they no longer want to use their own money. Uh, the UK mm-hmm. doesn't want to use its own money any longer. America doesn't. Of course, they only used they used ninety percent and reinvested it back in their own country. Of course, um, so how do we use their own money against them? This appears to be their plan of continuing the war on Russia. Let's use the own their own money uh, against them. They're now, now just looking for a legal way to make that happen. Um, but you would set a dangerous precedent. The mechanism, the potential impacts against going forward. You know, this is central bank access. You know, that's been stored with them. I mean, that would affect everyone else within that central bank system. You know, to know potentially that anyone who's within that could just take their money and use it for their own ends. Um, so that does set a really dangerous precedent. And I was listening to, um, he was talking to Reuters this past week, um, post that interview, and he says that. Oh, we don't say no to asset confiscation. Uh, we just need to work to a mechanism, he said. And for example, or we need to use the collateral now gained from interest to raise funds for Ukraine. Um, it's taxable revenue, so we can use it. So they, they are using the interest, but they can't use the actual asset itself. Wow. So they got themselves a big old hedge fund there uh, called uh, Putin's uh, Money for a Rainy Day, uh, 300 plus billion. Unbelievable. Wow. Is that what we've been reduced to? It's just like piracy, Christian. I mean, the the (laughs) West, they can't produce anything. They've exported offshore all their industry. Uh, They've shot themselves in the foot with uh, oil and gas through sanctions and blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. What's left just to see what you can pilfer? Basically, I mean, we're back in the Middle Ages again, Christian. Yeah, I think that that could definitely be a way you could frame it. I mean, the, have we run out of money to 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 utilize in this war that we now have to use their money against them? I, I think the uh, the precedent for that is is just incredible. If that even rolls through to any kind of um, fruition or action, um, every country has will look at that and go, "I'm not going to save my money with that bank. I will not." Uh, invest my country's infrastructure of money uh, in another, you know, 
offshore account with another country because potentially it's going to get taken. Um, so if you are in a second world nation or you're a country who wants to put into a, a kind of hedge fund, um, you might not want that to happen at all. So effectively, this will also then damage uh, the trust of the banking system. Maybe that is also part of the plan too. Maybe, uh, maybe that could be part of the plan. That could be the another entree to the CBDC, perhaps. But, you know, why, why keep your money in dollars and euros when you can put it in rubles or Chinese yuan? Uh, maybe it's be, it'll be a safer, more accessible, more liquid. It might even turn you a better profit. I mean, uh, that's what's really going to happen. You're going to start seeing a lot of direct foreign investment, Christian, uh, drifting eastward, uh, drifting eastward if it becomes dangerous uh, to keep in Western pockets. So we'll see that with South America as well and Asia. So those are all macroeconomic trends. Davos, I think it's literally a case of damage control, Christian. Um, their agenda is absolutely hitting the wall right now but it's not going to stop them they've got plenty of cash to keep the, the to keep the show going for a while but uh, we're going to break in a moment uh but i want to thank you christian for joining us on tnt today's news talk this week much appreciated thank you very much patrick a pleasure as always there he goes ladies and gentlemen that's christian james our research assistant for the show a lot to think about there let's take a quick break however and connect basil valentine our intrepid correspondent with middle east updates before we wrap up this second hour of this live broadcast on thursday i'm patrick henningson stay right there jdrs vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes Type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Next time you think you can illegally handle your mobile phone while driving and get away with it, think again. Phone detection cameras are in operation on New South Wales roads. Hello? So if you're driving and illegally handle your mobile phone, you can stop it or cop it. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're in the final stretch of the final segment of the final hour on this Thursday here at TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Hennings, your host. Let's bring on to the line right now our intrepid correspondent this week, Basil Valentine. Basil, uh, uh, we haven't talked a lot about the breaking updates regarding uh, the Gaza situation. Uh, what have you heard? What do we need to know? Uh, good afternoon, Patrick. Good to be with you. Um, lots of 
updating stories as we speak. Of course, the most awful pictures coming out of Gaza today are those of a toddler, probably aged two years old, simply dead on the floor of a tent, a really appalling image, uh, rather reminiscent of that one of the uh, refugee child on the beach that went around the world a few years ago, if you remember. I don't know if this one will. Um, also, uh, pictures of the Gaza University being detonated by over 300 mines, a substantial four or five story building that at one time was a center of learning, reduced to rubble. It was uh, unoccupied at the time and uh, obviously not being used by Hamas. So this is all part of the genocide, the destruction of Palestinian culture and places of learning. Here in the UK, a rather disturbing development, a grandmother uh, was arrested yesterday in Cornwall for having the temerity to put a picture on the door of her local MP uh, a picture which I think actually was taken in the West Bank or Bethlehem of a child being arrested. So not a gory picture at all, just a small child being arrested by uh, the IDF and everyday occurrence, of course. Um, and uh, she's been arrested for criminal damage, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, really terrible scenes of this elderly, frail woman having to deal with uh, four or five hired goons masquerading as policemen uh they do have actually have official badges they're not ipo mob <laughs> um and uh all because she just simply put a picture on the mp's door so you know indicative of the way the police state is being mobilized against uh opposition to the genocide absolutely bizarre and this woman said she'd written to her mp emailed her a number of times so had a number of other people she knew in the constituency wanting to know why this MP was not calling for an immediate ceasefire. Didn't get a reply, of course. No reply. MPs far too important and busy to actually reply to their constituents. So she went to the constituency office and put a, a poster on the door uh, saying, why aren't you calling for a ceasefire with a picture? And that gets you arrested in Britain. Um, just to bring you up to date with uh, sort of the latest from inside Israel itself, Itmar Ben-Gavir went on uh, Israeli television last night, Channel 12, and called once again for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. He said Israel needs, needs to occupy Gaza and stay there, and that it should develop a plan of encouragement to make Palestinians leave. And he is, of course... Uh, a member of the so-called war cabinet. Also today, the European Parliament has voted to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza on the condition that all the Israeli hostages held in the territory are released and Hamas is dismantled. So good luck with that one and why they don't reference the 8,000 hostages in the Israeli gulag, I have absolutely no idea. The resolution is non-binding. And quite frankly, like a lot of what the European Parliament does, absolutely 100% irrelevant. However, talks are progressing to secure a ceasefire, uh, according to Arab officials, which would include a so-called month-long humanitarian pause. Uh, a rather ghoulish idea, if you ask me, that for some reason uh, uh, the uh, bombing will stop for a month, a whole month, 
uh, it remains to be seen whether sufficient aid will enter Gaza to stop the starvation and the imminent outbreak of epidemics. I've also learned today that some 10,000 people will have hepatitis A. Um, and then at the end of this month, uh, what, the bombing continues or something, does it? I mean, absolutely ludicrous. The senior Arab official told NBC News that the negotiations are part of a bigger deal that could also result in the normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This, of course, is Brett McGurk at the State Department, his pet project. This is what the uh, uh, the uh, Americans are trying to do to try and get some influence with the Israelis. They're offering them the carrot of normalization with Saudi, which the Israelis have long coveted in exchange for stopping the genocide for a short while. Arab states are apparently in advanced discussions on initiatives to secure a ceasefire and a release of hostages as part of a broader plan that could offer Israeli norm Israel normalization with uh, other Arab and Muslim states and irreversible steps to the creation of a Palestinian state, in which case it's a dead duck because the Israelis aren't going to agree to that without huge sanctions. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, dragging on the uh, promise of a state and then moving it into the defunct two-state solution negotiation trap. Uh, they'd love to do all that again, wouldn't they? Restart that whole Farago, Basil? Well, that's right. Blinken's been talking about a pathway to a Palestinian state. Well, there was a pathway to a Palestinian state in 1946. There was a pathway, particularly apparently after the Oslo Accords, but it never got there. So it's just a more kicking into the long grass, you know. Meanwhile, um, Gideon Levy writing in Haaretz talks about how he thinks the Israelis are trying to provoke another intifada by making life in the West Bank impossible. Half a dozen uh, Palestinians were murdered in the West Bank only last night and today. Um, and uh, it takes three and a half hours to cover a distance of 10 kilometers. Uh, the whole of the Palestinian territory in the West Bank is now completely uh, bantustized, uh, reduced to pockets with innumerable checkpoints, roadblocks, and every other form of obstruction imaginable to make, uh, you know, traveling between various Palestinian places in the West Bank all but impossible. You could get from London to Moscow quicker than you can from one part of the West Bank to another. That's the day-to-day -day situation there. Obviously, we had Issa Amro on the program on Monday that explained what was going on, how this was absolutely horrible day-to-day -day, uh, situation, people living in the occupied territories, uh, especially in the West Bank, and especially in the wake of what's happened uh, in Gaza, the genocide that's uh, undergoing, still going, in fact, some of the deadliest days uh, in the last week, Basil, in terms of uh, dead Palestinians injured in Gaza. So the devastation has not let up, uh, despite the fact that the media seem to be getting fatigue uh, on this issue. Basil Valentine... Yes, Media coverage is getting worse and worse. Just finally, uh, the number of Palestinians living in Rafah in the south has quadrupled, according to the United Nations. Uh, they're now over a quarter of 1.2 million people living in an area previously occupied by 200,000. And the vast majority of them are starving. Incredible situation. Basil Valentine, thank you for joining us this week on TNT. Thank you, Patrick.
appreciate your commentary, your analysis. Also, a big thank you to Christian James, our research assistant, Marcus Krauss, and also Layla Hatoum. We've had a busy Thursday. We hope that you've got the information that you need to know what's going on in the world. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Take care, you guys.